So from the very beginning, the drug laws were kind of always about making distinction between one group and another group. The drug money and use it to fund their police department if they don't have enough money. Your dad's in prison, you're probably going to be in prison. Who goes through all the effort of buying so many coca leaves and making their own cocaine probably deserves it. Hi, I'm Greg Mastrider, and this is my podcast on rationality, transhumanism, productivity, and trends of development in society. Today, here with me is Nico Vorobyov. He is a writer who was formerly incarcerated for selling drugs. Hi, Nico. Hey. I hear that, I hear that now you are an activist pro-legalization. Is that correct? Um... Well, I think activist might be a bit of a strong term, but uh, I definitely, I'm trying to, I try to take my, my bad experience, my bad decisions, and I try to turn it into kind of a good thing. I try to, uh, I want to let people know what's happening more, you know, so they can see the reality because there's been a lot of, of bad faith arguments and a lot of propaganda over the years. And now we're just, we're just in a huge mess, especially you can see now in in America with all the, the riots and the the protests. So a lot of that is down to the down to the, the way that the drug laws have been policed over the years. And you can see in all other countries across the world actually you saw it in Russia, for example, like the last year with the arrest of Golanov, for example. So yeah, yeah, I'm trying to hopefully trying to change people's views through my writing. For those viewers and listeners not aware of the situation with Golunov, he is a famous Russian journalist who was uh, wrongfully accused of uh, carrying drugs with him on political grounds and almost uh, incarcerated, although saved by the public outcry. Uh, well, Nico, uh, I think it's a very interesting and important topic, uh, uh, this uh, legalization. And uh, there's been debate going on for dozens of years already. So we are going to discuss that definitely. But first of all, please, just in short, uh, tell the viewers and listeners who are not aware of who you are, your story. Uh, just the uh, highlights, what you did, how you turned out to become a criminal and uh, uh, what you're doing now. Okay, well, um, as you can tell from my accent, like it's kind of hard to place me anywhere. So I was born in, uh, in Russia. It was called the, the good old Soviet Union back then. Uh, but we moved around a lot. We moved to America. That's why I learned English in America from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's why my accent's a little bit strange. <laughs> Um, but then we moved to England and I never really fit in at school. You know, I wanted something to, I was never really like, a, I was always kind of a geek, you know, I wanted to be more popular. So that's what kind of, uh, got me into drugs and drug dealing, things like that. Like, uh, I was going to a lot of underground raves, like ecstasy parties, uh, selling stuff there. At one point I actually got stabbed and robbed. I got stabbed, uh, six times. Uh, that's a whole other story. And, but that wasn't enough to kind of scare me away. I actually started doing it more and more, you know, I got drawn more into that world until eventually, um, well, I, I even had like a little, by the end of it, I even had like a little operation where like other, I was going to university and I was selling drugs at university. I had other guys, uh, selling stuff for me as well. So I wasn't just doing it on my own. I was like a small, really small town time, uh, like boss in the university. 
But then eventually I got caught in a really stupid way because, you know, like when uh, when you're a criminal, you have to be lucky all the time. When you're the police, you only have to be lucky once. So I did a really right. stupid thing. As I always tell the my cu- customers on the Metro, don't take drugs on the Metro in London. Like there are dogs in the Metro. There's like police dogs standing on the top of the escalators. And then it's like an easy way for them to to catch people coming up and down because they've got nowhere to go. But then one day, you know, I was in a hurry and I just put like a few wraps in my back pocket. I was going to meet my friend. I was like, fuck it. You know, like what are the chances that someone is going to stop me? And they did. Hmm. And then I got a nice uh, two and a half year vacation uh, paid for by the British government, you know, free meals, free accommodation, free gym access. I can't say the company was very nice, but, you know, take what you can get. And then after that experience, um, so while I was there, while I was in prison, I was reading a lot of books. Um the books, two books which most influenced me are El Narco, which is like a history of like the Mexican drug war, and another book called Mr. Nice. It's like a biography by a Welsh uh, Welsh hash smuggler. And those two books, they got me thinking about like the sort of like the bigger picture of why I was in I was in prison. I mean, of course, you know, like I did what I did. It's my it's my own fault for being stupid and messing around. But there are certain um, there are certain patterns to all this happening. And I thought, like, while I was stupid, I could see some kind of parallels to what happened to me and, for example, in America in the 1920s uh, when alcohol was illegal. So that got me thinking, like, why is, like, a bot- why can you buy, like, a bottle of vodka or a can of beer at any shop? But, like, me selling some grass to some students, that's what got me two and a half years. And when I got out of prison, that uh, after I got off parole, of course, I traveled the world and I tried to find out more about this question. Yeah, and now you've written uh, Dope World, a book about the international drug trade. Uh, I will give the link to the books that you mentioned and your book uh, in the description of the YouTube video and the podcast Namaste. audio version. Yeah, so it's quite an interesting read. Uh, and really, I think the analogy is is uh, quite correct with the 1920s, with uh, the period where when alcohol was banned. I, I would say that the analogy would be correct with uh, so-called uh, light recreational drugs like uh, marijuana. But would you draw the same comparison between alcohol and uh, some heavier drugs? I would, but not in the same way. Um, I mean, like, uh, so the arguments that about making like pot legal, it's pretty much the same as making alcohol legal. But when you get into something like heroin, it's a more interesting territory. But I think also that heroin should be legalized in a certain way. And um, I can tell you why. So, for example, yeah. um, in Switzerland, in the like, I'm going to say late 1980s, early 1990s, they had a big, uh, big drug problem big heroin problem especially and there was a park in Zurich that was called Needle Park where the police basically like just gave up and they said you know like it's better if like we can just have this problem in this area and then nowhere else so if we just leave them alone in this area it'll be fine and that didn't work out because uh first of all there was no control over the kind of heroin that's being sold so for example it's uh, if you had like a drink of 
alcohol from me, like one of those cartoon bottles where it just says XX on them. So you don't know what the purity of the alcohol is. So maybe you're drinking a beer, it's like 4%. Maybe you're drinking absinthe, it's like 80%. You don't know. So that's what the people in the park, the kind of heroin they were buying. So of course, there was overdoses almost every night. And you also still had the, the criminal elements. So someone was obviously still selling them the drugs. Then there was like, uh, there were like three, three main gangs. There was one from Yugoslavia, like Serbian guys. There was like a Turkish gang and the Lebanese gang, and they were all fighting each other. So what they closed that park in the end. And of course, there was the problem, you know, like all these dirty syringes being around everywhere. So maybe some children pick them up, things like that. So they closed the park. But what Switzerland did later on is they put heroin on prescription. So now you can go to, um, I think there are still like some loopholes you have to jump through before you can get it. It's not just like mm-hmm. you can go to this clinic and say, yeah, give me heroin. If you're signed up, uh, you can go to this clinic. Uh, they will give you free heroin. It's clean heroin. Uh, so there's no like additives in it. You're under medical supervision. I think to date, no one has actually overdosed in those places and it's free. So there's no reason why uh, like the addicts will need to commit crime. There's no reason why the gangsters will need to like start shootouts and stab each other in public places. And when you have like the, pre- the pure heroin as well, Avkin, it's not good for you, but like the main problem is it's the addiction. But there is like, compared to say tobacco, there is like little harm to your body, like physical harm, that uh, will actually come from using heroin. Like the physical harm, it comes from other things that are in the heroin, but the diamorphine by itself, it's it's less harmful than tobacco. But, but it's, it's extremely, tobacco. extremely addictive. Uh, I think heroin should be more addictive than tobacco, right? Mm, I don't know if there is like any way to scientifically kind of quantify how addictive. I've seen it is, I've but... seen some graphs that like heroin is number one, cocaine is number two. Are they yeah, not well, correct? Well, we, we we can agree that it's it's extremely addictive. Yes, but um, for example, so is tobacco. But we don't treat tobacco in the same way. But the problem with like heroin addiction is it's it's making it difficult for the people to have who have the addiction to get by. And it's also more difficult for society around them. You know, when they start, if they are like a working class heroin addict, then they don't have the money to afford it. They start stealing things and it causes more crime and things like that. But you don't see that problem with cigarettes. You don't see kind of cigarette smokers like stealing old people's TVs and selling them so they can get another pack of Marlboros. So what they did in Switzerland is they took the profit out of the equation. And also like it's... Uh, Because you always know when the next dose is coming from, you're not always worried about getting screwed by the police or the dealers. So it's kind of karma. So you have more time to kind of sort out your life and gradually wean yourself off it. Because a lot of, a lot of people do drugs. Not everyone gets addicted. But people get addicted generally. They have some kind of messed up life beforehand. They have some trauma. And like always being on the lookout for uh, police or drug dealers or someone you owe money to, It's uh, it's not good for their mental health. But if you take that out of the equation, if you make it more calm for them, they have a better chance to rebuild their lives and make something of themselves, if that makes sense to you. So you're basically saying that uh, we should legalize all uh, drugs, all kinds of drugs, or should some kinds of drugs be illegal? Like, I don't know, the most dangerous ones, like fentanyl. 
So I think we should decriminalize all drugs for personal use. That means like if you are caught with like a small amount of any kind of drug, fentanyl, whatever, if it's obviously like it's just for you, like it's like less than a gram or whatever, I think it should be like Portugal, like anything under a certain amount in Portugal and Czech Republic, it's not a crime. Police aren't even looking for it. Like you have to be really stupid. Like you have to be sitting in front of a school smoking crack in broad daylight to get arrested, like something like that. So like I said, different things for different things. So I think like like uh, cannabis, marijuana, it can be sold like the same way alcohol. Like something like heroin, like I said, it should be legalized, but under these strict circumstances like they have like in Switzerland. I don't think that like, I don't think anyone, any like normal human being would want like heroin in the supermarket. Because that's obviously like a stupid idea. Um, when it comes to something like crystal meth, uh, it's a bit more difficult because there are, not with everybody, of course, and not something that will happen, but it can happen that crystal meth causes like extreme paranoia, extreme aggression. Not always, like a lot of people use crystal meth and they're fine, but it can, but it, and it's quite risky. But I think if you had, um, if you legalize other substances which are like that, but lighter. So for example, people take crystal meth to party. If you legalize ecstasy, which is also an amphetamine, and it doesn't have anywhere near like the sort of crazy side effects that crystal meth does. I think that will take a lot of the demand for crystal meth away in the first place. You know, if people have this other alternative. But still, uh, many of those substances are quite toxic. If we speak about uh, ecstasy, for example, or MDMA, there are uh, some scientific papers on uh, their neurodegenerative effects, especially if they are used in uh, high dosages or if they get mixed with something like alcohol. Yeah. So uh, uh, wouldn't uh, it be more dangerous to, to let people freely use those kind of substances? Of course, I see the drawbacks of the criminalization of drugs, but wouldn't the pros outweigh the cons uh, if we keep them illegal? Maybe legalize only the least uh, harmful ones like marijuana, but uh, still uh, make uh, the dangerous ones criminal. What do you think about that? Well, I'll give you an example of somebody I met. So when I was writing my book, I'm, I asked, I specifically looked for, I wanted to meet like the parent of somebody who died from a drug overdose. And I, I got through to a charity called uh, Anyone's Child. It's an English charity. And they, made, uh, they put me through to a guy called Ray Lakeman, who actually in one night, he lost both of his sons to ecstasy on the same night. Like not just one, and then like another one died some years later. They died at the same time, both of his both of his only children, and of course he was like extremely upset. But um, he also wants uh, wants ecstasy to be legal, and he's actually done like a lot of uh, in newspaper interviews to this to this point. Of course, I was a little bit scared meeting him because you know of my mm -hmm. of my old job, but uh, we more or less got along quite well. So basically his reasoning is that when you have these drugs like ecstasy, they are they can be dangerous, yes. But like I said with heroin before, uh, it's a lot more dangerous being kept in the, in the criminal element. So the reason why his sons died, they were found, the two of them were found in a room over a bar um, in Manchester, and they had six times like the lethal amount of ecstasy. 
So he said, wow. uh, Ray Lakeman, the, the father, he told me that from the point of view of the dealer, what the dealer did wrong is he did not specify exactly the quality of his product. Because when you have an illegal business, there's no way to control the quality of the product. Like mm-hmm, if you go mm-hmm. to McDonald's and you eat some rotten meat or something and then you get sick, you can sue McDonald's or McDonald's will give you some money to quietly make you shut up. Uh, whereas when like the drug cartels doesn't have that problem. So his his meaning is if they knew what they were taking, if they if there was like if they got in a box and it said containers, like the warning, don't take more than this, blah, 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 this contains this. Uh, they would still be alive. So I would argue that by keeping them illegal, you're ma- you're making the harms like a lot worse for a lot uh, of these drugs. Not all of them, I think, like I said, I think crystal meth, it will be hard to kind of justify its legalization. It's so extreme, it's hard to justify its legalization anyway. But for uh, heroin, ecstasy, and a lot of the harder drugs, not all of them, but a lot of them, you can say that. Uh, which would you include in the list uh, of uh, banned substances like crystal meth? What else? Oh, good question. I didn't think about that before too much. Um, oh, there's a lot. Uh, I think fentanyl. There's no reason for you to have that uh, legal. It's crazy how many people are dying right now because of fentanyl. It's like uh, epidemics. Yeah, and that's like, that's another point, by the way. So you know why, especially in America, why they have fentanyl? Because before, um, and I've been there in Mexico, I've seen them. Mexico is a big producer of heroin from the poppies. But if you want to make like even like uh, one kilo of heroin, you need like uh, a poppy field the size of a football pitch, you know? And you have mm-hmm. to hide that from the police somehow or pay the police, pay the army, whatever. Over there, they pay the army. And it's also very hard to smuggle. Uh, it's not hard, but it's hard to fit this kilo somewhere in your car boot. Uh, whereas fentanyl, you only need a little bit to get the same effect. So it's easier to smuggle. So that's why now there is much more fentanyl uh, being smuggled into the United States. And it's because it's a lot easier to just hide this, a laboratory, which can be in just one room, and then hide this tiny packet somewhere in your car. Probably the dogs won't find it. Because um, it's uh, sy- synthetically produced. Uh, it's, it's opioid, by, but synthetically produced for those of viewers and listeners who don't know about it. Yeah. So the, the only reason why there's so much fentanyl really um, is because it's such an advantage for the criminal organizations, for like the Mexican cartels and the Chinese triads who make it. So again, this is a problem of the, a problem of the black market of illegalization. Like, they don't have the fentanyl problem in Switzerland, for example, where anyone who's addicted to heroin can just go to this clinic. Yeah, makes sense. So, uh, we started listing the drugs that would go into the banned category if yeah. you were to implement the drug reform. Uh, crystal meth, fentanyl, what else? I'd be very careful. I don't know if it's banned, but uh, because it, it grows naturally as well. So, I think banning it might be... So- but, like, shouldn't be solved, definitely. There is a thing... Uh, there's a kind of shrub in America called uh, Jimson Weed. Okay, so there's this website called, uh, I think it, if there's listeners in Russia, that you might need like a VPN to get on this. But uh, there's a website called Erowid, which is basically it's yeah. just trip reports. And the stuff that comes up for Jimson Weed, it's both like the funniest and the most like horrifying stuff. Because like, with other psychedelics, uh, like for example... 
I have done like uh, ayahuasca and LSD, but at some point you can kind of make that distinction like, okay, these like rainbow goblins I'm seeing in the sky probably aren't real, right? Whereas with Jimson weed, like there's so many stories where I like, uh, I was sitting in a room talking to my dad and then I went to this party and then like, it just feels like real life. But then like when you wake up and you talk to your friends, you like, you're, nothing happened. You were just in the corner of the room and you pissed yourself. I think something like that, like that's, um, that can be kind of quite dangerous because you might not realize that you're still tripping. Yeah, you might do something uh, dangerous. Yeah, under, like I would, I wouldn't under. say to to ban it necessarily, but like because you can find it in the desert in America, but it definitely shouldn't be sold. What about other psychedelics? What's your take on them? As far as I know, I think uh, most psychedelic psychedelics are probably like, unless you are doing it all the time, I think they're like the least harmful for your body. I think they should all be legalized and allowed in a kind of in a controlled safe setting uh, like for example you have in um in amsterdam you have a lot of these kind of special rooms you know where you have like the where they sell shrooms and stuff and they have this like soothing music no sharp objects you know so you can just kind of relax and take it all in so i think that should be fine what about the fact that uh, psychedelics uh, may lead to intensifying uh, psychological uh, traumas uh, in people with a history of uh, psychological disorders or even sometimes without such history? Uh, yeah, I think there there is definitely a risk there. But I think like, first of all, I think the research there, it's a bit tenuous because although there is a link, we're not sure like how much of the of this was caused by the psychedelics themselves how much someone was already kind of getting a bit unhinged and then they started taking psychedelics and they got more unhinged or what the exact link is. Like, I'm not really sure. I think it's this is a question better posed to uh, your friend, Mr. Lebedev, who, yeah. I, saw, for, who I saw interviewed. For those, but, yeah. for those who didn't watch it, watch the podcast with uh, Alexander Lebedev. The link will be below in the description. Yeah, please yeah. continue. But I think like, overall, like the risk of this happening is... Uh, from the reports I've read by Professor David Nutt, for example, who specialized in these things, uh, I think that the risk is pretty low. I mean, there is a risk, but I think like something uh, risk existing, unless it's like, like I said, crystal meth, it's a big risk. But if it's a risk, like relatively small, I mean, we're taking a risk if we're um, going skiing, uh, horseback riding, mountain climbing, I think just, just a risk on its own. I think it's not enough to justify a ban. Well, some would argue that uh, the risk uh, while skiing should probably be less significant. But yeah, I get your point. Uh, what other drugs would you ban? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I didn't really think about it too much. Uh, apart from what I said already, I think like all these fake weed, um, like you know, the spice. The, the fake, yeah, fake weed the stuff. Yeah, ke chemical, chemical weed, yeah. I think, like, if you had legal weed, no one would really want to smoke spice to begin with because the only reason why someone would really smoke spice is because they either can't get weed or they can get weed, but they're afraid of being tested by their boss. or their, Like, in the UK, the spice, it's a big problem in prisons because they, uh, they made us pee into a little bottle and then tested our pee for drugs, but spice doesn't come up. 
So that's why everyone, uh, a lot of prisoners in, in Britain are smoking spice. And spice, it's really not good um, for your kind of mental health, especially over a long period of time. So yeah, I would put spice there. But I think no one would really miss it. What about uh, crocodile? You know, this uh, drug popular in Russia, uh, which is uh, like uh, one of the deadliest ones, I guess. The spice. No, no, no. Crocodile. It's a oh, mix. Oh, cro crocodile, yeah. Yeah, it's a mix of uh, heroin and something else, I, I, as far as I know. It's, um, from, what I, from what I understand, it's like a kind of homemade heroin that um, desperate people try to make out of coughs, cough medicine or something like that. Yeah, I guess I would probably ban that too. I wouldn't ban the cough medicine though, but I think that like... It's a product of the of the illegalization because like the people are desperate. Like obviously, I think by now everybody knows, everyone's seen those videos on YouTube, what crocodile can do to your limbs. And, like kind of turns you into sort of like a rot right like walking, walk, walking dead extra, yeah. Yeah. So I think like a lot of these a lot of these people, they would just rather do heroin or opium or something normal like that. But the the fact that they're doing crocodile, it's because they're they're desperate. So I think if they had access to something lighter, or at least not even heroin, just maybe just even methadone, because methadone, I think it's it's also illegal in Russia. If they had access to methadone, then they wouldn't be turning to these things. Methadone is the substance used for replacement therapy, right? Yeah. Uh, so for your listeners, so methadone in a lot of countries, not Russia, but a lot of countries like here in Britain, it's uh. It's given like on prescription. It doesn't give you the same kind of high as, as heroin. So you're not going to be sitting there like, uh, but it does kind of uh, stave off the feelings of like, um, what's the word of, uh, of dependency. So you don't, you don't kind of start feeling like sweaty or uncomfortable or feverish like when you don't have uh, heroin, you know, it kind of takes care of that. It's like a, it's like a nicotine touch for cigarettes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a little bit. Is the best analogy I can think of. Why do you think it's banned in some countries, uh, these replacement therapies? For example, in Russia, all kinds of such replacement therapies are outlawed. I think in a way, uh, first of all, there is one kind of, I'm not going to say it's a good point, but from what I've, from what I've read and from what people who are, like, who are on heroin and methadone have told me, that like the crash The dependency when you don't have heroin or methadone, it's a lot worse than if it's just heroin. Um, so it's still like it's still like an addiction. So I think uh, in some countries, just having the addiction in the first place, rather than like how you're coping with the addiction, is seen as the seen as the issue. So like when you have something like methadone instead of heroin, it's seen as just you're just trading one addiction for another, and that kind of distinction of what you do with the addiction isn't really looked into that much, even though like talking to people on methadone, they're, they are, they do seem like a little bit high, but they're not like, like, you know, comatose. They can still like walk around, do stuff, like drive the car, normal things like that. So I think that sort of, that thing, that it's still like an addiction, it makes certain people uncomfortable. I see, I see. Well, you mentioned earlier that uh, many of the current problems in the US, in your opinion, are connected to, to the drug issue. Uh, <laughs> can you please explain in more detail? Okay, uh, so 
for example, the, the current problem that's in the news right now in America, it's um, police brutality. So uh, with America, the original drug laws uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, they were actually kind of fairly explicitly racist. So the cocaine wasn't banned because, remember back in those days, they didn't worry about health too much, you know, because you had, they kind of knew that cigarettes, they didn't know exactly why cigarettes are bad for you, but they suspected that smoking was bad for you, but they still had these big posters, you know, like only doctors smoke, no, all doctors smoke camels or something like that. Something ridiculous that you'd never see today. So they knew that kind of that, for example, that cocaine was addictive and it could give you heart attacks, for example, potentially. But uh, the real reason why it was banned, what finally pushed it over, was because there was a sense, like a sort of a moral panic in the media that like uh, black plantation workers in the South, they couldn't afford uh, alcohol. So they, they snorted cocaine and it also helped them work, gave them more energy and stuff. And, you know, because cocaine is also an aphrodisiac, kind of makes you horny. So, you know, horny, horny black guys, kind of innocent white girls, America, early 20th century, you can see where this is going. And the same sort of things uh, happened with opium. So opium was uh, banned originally because uh, the Americans were scared of about Chinese immigrants and, oh, what are they doing in those opium dens? Are they getting our nice white girls again? And even the alcohol prohibition in the 1920s, um, there was a movement to ban alcohol before that. But after World War One, because of the Germans and all the German beer makers, there was a lot of, mm. kind of xenophobia. So that's kind of, it was unpatriotic to, to like drink beer and drink all these German things. So that's one of the reasons why, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why alcohol was banned. So from the very beginning, the drug laws were kind of always about uh, making distinction between one group and another group. Uh, over time, as America became kind of less, less overly racist, so like by the 1960s, for example, the civil rights era, like you couldn't, you couldn't just like ban something because like some black or Chinese or Mexican people did it. Um, you had to be more sneaky. So what, uh, what Nixon did was he used like the, he starts a new war on drugs to kind of, first of all, to distract the public from the war in Vietnam. And secondly, because it gave him an excuse to arrest lots of black people and hippies who are all against the war in Vietnam. And then this pattern's continued like through Reagan, through Nixon, through Clinton, sorry. And what's happened is now the, these neighborhood, there are certain neighborhoods in America which are basically ghettos the police go there, they know that people are poor, so they're more likely to be dealing drugs. So they arrest more of the poor people from those areas who are usually like either black or Latino. So what happens? These guys go to prison, uh, their families get torn apart, so their kids grow up without fathers, without, you know, without supervision, without discipline. Meanwhile, when they get out, they can't get a proper job anymore. In some cases, they can't vote. And because the police are arresting so many black people and Latinos already, that automatically creates a sort of impression in the public eye, like, oh, okay, these guys are all like drug dealers, basically. So then the cycle continues. So it becomes like an easy, it's also an easy way for them to make money because in some states in America, they can just confiscate the drug money and use it to fund their police department if they don't have enough money. So they actually have an incentive to go after, like pull over black people more. So if you see it was like, with a lot of these uh, police shootings in America, 
uh, like on a on a road stop, the police are, are stopping people because they think that they they can confiscate some money to finance their police department. So a lot of these police shootings take place in small towns which don't have a budget. So there's more of an bigger uh, bigger chance of an encounter between like a uh, uh, a black person and the police. And of course, with a bigger chance of encounter, bigger chance these encounters can go wrong. Yeah. I'm not sure I explained that very well. There certainly are some uh, causal links between all that. So uh, I think most experts. Yes. Oh, I have... should add. I should add that uh -huh. um, right now in the American prison, there is actually more um, a bigger percentage of black, black Americans are in jail than were in prison in South Africa during apartheid. And also, America has the highest prison population of anywhere in the yeah. world. So black Americans are the most imprisoned population in the world. So then, like, when yeah. you look at these neighborhoods and you, like, a lot of people think, oh, okay, you know, why can't they just, like, get their act together and work hard? I mean, it's, it's kind of hard when you're always on the lookout for the police and, like, your dad's in prison, you're probably going to be in prison, you don't really have any prospects, and, like, the cycle continues. So, for example, even though like like Jews and Italians, they also lived in ghettos at some point in America, but they didn't have anywhere near this like level of uh, criminalization and stereotyping that Black Americans have to deal with. Yeah, so this is all horribly unfair, and it's no wonder people are outraged about it. So the question is, how would you deal with that situation, policy-wise? Well, obviously, many experts say that the war on drugs in the U.S., especially and in many other countries, has been a huge failure. You say that uh, we should uh, decriminalize or even legalize most drugs. But how would you go about it? So, obviously, uh, it wouldn't be just uh, one law uh, making all those substances legal and, uh, and that's all. It, it probably should be some something like a step-by-step -step program. How would you do that? Yeah, uh, like I said, uh, like with like the different drugs should be treated differently. I, even you can see that now with like legal drugs. So you can buy coffee anywhere. Like, like five-year-old can buy coffee. Um, whereas like uh, I don't know, I don't remember how it is. Yeah, no, and like everywhere, like cigarettes, for example, they're always behind the counter in most countries mm -hmm. these days. Like, I, for shits like that in Russia, it's like that in Britain, maybe not all countries, but a lot of countries. So, yeah, you should you should obviously treat them different. So, like, I think something like marijuana should be treated like uh, alcohol. Or if we want to be careful, it should be treated like hard alcohol. So, like, only sell it in, like, a special place like the like coffee shops or these, like, cannabis clubs they have in Spain or, like, behind the counter it, or from certain dispensaries or whatever, we have to be over 18 to enter this. Like I said, I think heroin should be put on uh, on a sort of prescription basis. I think something like coca leaves, which is used to make cocaine. Uh, I think cocaine is a different topic. I'm not quite sure how a legal cocaine market might work. There are some articles on the internet that probably explain it better than me. Um, but I think coca leaves uh, right now in South America You can just buy them in any shop, and I think it should be the same here. They they I mean, chew they chew them right uh, to be more energetic. Yeah, it's, it's 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 traditional. Yeah, it's also quite. They also contain a lot of um, like minerals and vitamins, so it's actually quite healthy for you. Apart from your teeth, I think it's not good for your teeth. But I mean, 
In theory, if you got enough of these coca leaves, you can make some cocaine. But I think anyone who goes through all the effort of buying so many coca leaves and making their own cocaine probably deserves it. So, like, we should just we should just let them do that. Strange logic, but okay. <laughs> um, I think something like ecstasy, you need to be more careful. But uh, one way it could work, for example, you could have uh, you could sell it from from pharmacies, somewhere you have to be registered and you can have like a quota or something like that. Uh, I think they have a system like that right now in Uruguay for um, for marijuana so that no one person can just kind of stock up loads and then sell it to their friends who don't have the prescription. But one thing I think that should be addressed that's not being addressed right now, even as like marijuana is being legalized across America, Canada and other countries, it's there's like no social, uh, the social equity. They did very badly in Canada, I think, is that they let the legal marijuana market pretty much all be controlled by big corporations or big interest groups. So they were saying like, okay, yeah, we're keeping that, keeping it out of the hands of organized crime. But there's kind of like a big difference between, it's so like, uh, like in the hell in Canada, like the hell, organized crime would mean like the Hell's Angels, biker gang, or like the Italian mafia, or like Haitian street gangs. But like, a lot of the, the growers of marijuana, they're not that. They're just like nor- very normal guys, you know? So, but these normal guys, they're the ones who are getting locked up before. They're the ones who like go to prison. Their families got torn apart. They can't get a job. And now they're locked out of the market. So the only guys who are really profiting out of it are rich white businessmen. And in some cases, like ex-police chiefs even, who like made it their job to lock these kind of people up before. So I think that's extremely unfair. And what they are doing in some parts of America, in some states, they're throwing out like uh, old marijuana or marijuana-related uh, convictions, and they're prioritizing the licenses, to, like these marijuana businesses, to um, either someone who is like has a criminal record for for this sort of thing, or some or for like impoverished communities or. Uh, communities which have like high rates of arrests for drugs so it's kind of like a way of of making up for all the the stuff i said earlier like the extreme over policing which is like devastate these communities it's kind of a way to to equalize it i think and i think that should be a big part of the question because then like if you're just going to hand it over to corporate control then like the situation in these communities isn't going to get any better it's going to have the same problems of like, like a different kind of crime or a different kind of drugs But I also asked a question about uh, the step-by-step process of uh, all this reform, because uh, wouldn't you agree that uh, it's not uh, really wise to implement this all in one step, just make everything uh, legal to a different extent, and that's all. Should we prepare people for that, maybe uh, some information policies, on harm, on risks, because uh, some viewers might get confused now, but uh, I'm sure we both agree that uh, most drugs pose some risk. Some pose (laughs) very high risk, others uh, lesser risk, but still they may be harmful, dangerous, even fatal for you. Uh, Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think it's a very practical question as well, because obviously like even when, when like Uruguay became like the first country to 
to legalize marijuana, it was like a very contentious issue because nobody wants to turn their country into like a big social experiment. Oh, what will happen if we let the genie out of the bottle here, you know, because he's not going to get back in, right? So I think uh, I think one good uh, measure they could do step by step is you could test it on a small scale first, perhaps like somewhere like a festival. For example, you have like a big festival like Glastonbury in the UK or Burning Man in America. And you say you implement certain policies there. Uh, maybe you can start with um, like drug testing. Uh, they have this in, in the UK, some festivals where there's like a tent and you can kind of anonymously hand over a sample of whatever it is you bought from this suspicious looking guy standing in the corner. <laughs> and you can test how, how much of the stuff you actually paid for is actually in it. And I think they successfully reduced like the overdose overdoses, yeah, by like I think at one festival something like eighty percent. Like it was something crazy because like when somebody sees that the pill they got is just full of like rat poison or whatever, like nine times out of ten they're just gonna throw. It. Of course, you have some idiots who are going to take it anyway, but like nine out of ten they just threw it away. So things like that, uh, that would be a good move. And then based on those results, you can kind of slowly expand the program. I think, yeah, something like that, that would be a good example of a first step. In fact, that um, the testing the drugs policy, it's now supported in the in the UK by the police or by some local, not the whole police, but like some local police. They're actually supporting this, this measure. <laughs> so it's not just like hippie druggy types, you know, with long hair and dreadlocks who want to get on this. Like the, the, the law enforcement is actually behind this. I think in the Netherlands, uh, something similar exists. Yeah, in the Netherlands, something similar. In the Netherlands, there is like a, from what I heard, there is a slight problem that it takes, sometimes it takes a few weeks for them to get back to you, whereas over there you can do it immediately. But yeah, the uh, Netherlands is a good example where like the country has implemented some of these policies, yeah. Which uh, country's policy on drugs do you like most? Uh, which one is the most uh, sensible one in terms of uh, how they treat drugs? So far, none of them really, but Netherlands comes close. But Netherlands has a lot of its own problems as well. For example? Um, for example, they haven't actually legalized weed there. It's a common misconception. What they've done is they've decriminalized weed and then made it the official policy to just not not bother these coffee shops. But and tech but technically these coffee shops, there's a law they can only have up to like uh, a kilo or half a kilo of, of cannabis on them at any one time. Which for like a huge tourist city like Amsterdam, for example, it's ridiculous. They're gonna run out in a couple of hours. And of course everybody um, violates that law. All coffee shops. Yeah, everybody violates, but it's, it's also illegal. Like for the shops, this it's legal for the shops to, to sell it, but it's not illegal for the shops to buy it themselves to sell it on. So the buying side of it, it's it's called the backdoor problem. So the buying side of it is um, it's still illegal and it's still controlled by like various mafia groups and, mm. and or even just like a normal guy who's like growing in his house can get can get arrested, even though. The product he's providing, it's legal when it comes out on the customer side. Does that make sense? So they have this kind of schizophrenic approach to it. And the other problem is with Amsterdam, especially, 
Um, because the Netherlands is quite unique in its sort of tolerance policy. That's why, like, all the druggy tourists go to the Netherlands. Yeah. So they have a big problem with, like, I don't know, like, drunk British guys just, like, walking around, getting high, doing stupid stuff. But that's a problem in that, the ne- not with the Netherlands, I think that's a problem with all the countries around the Netherlands. Because that's what makes the Netherlands unique. So if you had, like, France, Belgium, Germany, Britain, if they had a more tolerant policy too, like, the Netherlands wouldn't be flooded with this, with this tour, it wouldn't be like such a big sort of thing. Oh yeah, let's go to Netherlands. Let's eat some brownies. Let's get high. You know, it wouldn't be such a problem there. But then they would do that just, in their hometowns. Wouldn't it be the same, just in a different location? It'll be more spread out. It wouldn't be constant, uh, so concentrated. The problem with, um, especially with Amsterdam, with that the locals find is that there is just so many people coming from everywhere mm-hmm. at the same time to do the same stuff. So the concentration Whereas, is like, the problem. Yeah. Whereas, whereas, if for example, I live in in Bath, it's a small town, uh-huh. a small city, let's say in England. So if we had that in Bath, like no one would want to have this special trip to Amsterdam where you go just to get high and bang hookers. If you could do the same thing here, so it wouldn't be a problem for Amsterdamers anymore. They wouldn't have this problem where there's this huge druggy city because it's more spread out. It's more controlled across everywhere. Does that make sense? Uh, kind of. Yes, but partially, because you said yourself that the, this uh, drunk and drugged people create problems for Amsterdam, uh, for other okay, cities. Uh, let me, wouldn't, let me put this way. wouldn't they create problems for Bath? Of course, not as many people would be there, but still. Okay, so like, let's say, for example, you had like a small Dutch Dutch village and you, like, you had 100 people all suddenly show up. They all start doing mushrooms. They all start smoking weed. They all start getting drunk and then going to the red light district. Uh, those 100 people in one small area are a lot harder to deal with than if they were split into five different cities, if the, their hometowns, so 20 from each city. And then the, the authorities and the health services deal with them there. It's a lot of, they're not, the, the city, the one city, isn't getting overwhelmed. That's the problem. It's just because there's so much... Because it seems this exotic thing, you know? And also, of course, if something is forbidden, then it just makes you want to do it more, you know? So that's why when people go to places like Amsterdam, they overdo it. It's like, um, for example, with drinking culture, I can compare it with a British drinking culture. We have a real problem with binge drinking. Yeah. It's like uh, basically 18, 19-year-olds going around the city center, getting drunk as hell, smashing up kebab shops. You don't have... Of course, the same problem exists, but not on the same level in France, where I think like in France, the, they take a much more mature attitude to drinking, like the kids drink with their like wine with their parents when they're like 14, 15, and it's not seen as like this sort of thing, oh yeah, we're 18, we can get drunk now, you know? There isn't the sort of the same excitement about it. It's more normal. It's not as uh, taken to this extreme that it is in, in the Amsterdam or Britain or whatever. There's still an important question. Don't you think that uh, after this legalization or decriminalization, the amount of people who will try drugs will be higher because it's more accessible? Uh, Some people today don't do drugs out of fear of uh, criminal prosecution, for example. They are curious, but uh, the fear is more significant, so they don't do that. But if you legalize drugs, those people, some of them at least, will try them. 
Oh, you're definitely right. And um, there's a lot of like the sort of legalized people. I'm one of them, but there's a lot of them who would say, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. It's not going to cause different. I think the evidence shows that it will. Um, so going back to America, the prohibition era, uh, if you look at like the hospital um, hospital admissions for like liver poisoning and things like that, they did go down a little bit. I think not a huge amount, something like 10, 15%, but they did go down during the prohibition. So there were less people drinking. But, 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 but. First of all, I don't think it's going to be uh, that big. Uh, like I said, only 10 to 15%. And in the States, for, for example, where they have legalized marijuana, also the amount of smokers hasn't really gone up that much. Uh, the secondly is, if you look at someone, a good example would be Sweden. So Sweden has a very strict drug policy. I think like outside of like the old Soviet countries like Russia and Belarus and stuff, I think it's like the strictest, definitely the strictest in the EU. And it's true, like they have a very low population of uh, drug users in Switzerland as well. Possibly, uh, I don't think it's all because of the laws. Maybe there's like some cultural things as well, like conformity. So there wasn't much drug use. But so it's, Swe- it's Swe- Sweden, not Switzerland. So. Sweden, yeah, Sweden. yeah, Sweden. Okay. But it's partly because of the laws, yeah. Um, but then if you look at the overdose rates, the overdose rates in Sweden for the people who do use drugs are among the highest in Europe. Whereas Portugal, where they are mostly left alone, uh, drug users, the, dr- the overdose rate is some of the lowest. So it's like it's you have to kind of strike this sort of balance. You can have more people doing drugs, but doing it safer, or you can have less people doing it drugs, but making it wildly more dangerous for them. So you're making an argument um, that uh, even though there will be more people doing drugs, less people will die, right? Yeah. So uh, the other thing I wanted to say was, uh, even though some people might use more drugs, they might use them instead of what they're doing already. So to give you an example, someone, someone's, your plans for Friday night might have been, you know, to go to a club, get drunk, and then maybe, and then get into a fight, then try to drive home, run over some like mother and her baby, and go home, beat up your wife, and then like throw up all over yourself. But then like, Maybe if if weed was legal, your plan would just be like, okay, just smoke some weed, and then okay, maybe I'll stay at home, watch some Rick and Morty or something. Oh, Rick and Morty! And then just call great. it night. <laughs> so you know, like in some ways, like it could be, it could be a net benefit if people switch from from drinking alcohol to doing other things. I, or for example, like uh, if you could make ecstasy as safe as possible. I think like if you if you're a bouncer, if you're a security guard. At the club, you almost never have trouble from someone uh, taking ecstasy. Mm-hmm. It's always some some idiot who's drunk too much or had cocaine. It's but if they did ecstasy, you know, they just want to hug. Maybe they like talk too much like nonsense about how they're gonna love their mother more when they get home or whatever. But apart from that, you know, not really much harm done. So in some ways, I think it could actually be a good thing. Just a quick disclaimer that there may actually be some harm done due to toxicity of that substance if you overdose on that, for example. But still, I agree that sometimes alcohol may be more harmful, especially the consequences of drunk behavior. So yeah, that's, that's a good argument. Another disclaimer, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> uh, neither am I. 
Well, it's an interesting argument. Uh, still, I, I'm not 100% convinced that you should uh, legalize the hard drugs. But uh, I think uh, the, the arbiter to that question would be some country or some area in some country that would conduct this experiment. Would, yeah, would, like the festival we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, that, that would, would uh, clarify this. So you said that uh, the Netherlands... Uh, is uh, the country that is uh, close to what you would approve of, but still not uh, that not satisfies you. That doesn't satisfy. Yeah, you. Um, and I think Portugal made a made a good step some years ago as well. But the the, the decriminalization process. But the problem is, they haven't truly really moved on since then. They haven't, for example, they haven't provided uh, safe places for heroin injectors and things like that. And it's also reaching the the wrong audience. So the idea in in Portugal, when you're get get if you if you do are stupid enough to get arrested, usually the people who are getting arrested are just like some teenager just smoking weed outside. And then like when you get you don't get really arrested, but you are sent to this like dissuasion commission, which is like a psychiatrist, a social worker, and something like that. And they, they see like, oh, they ask you if you have a problem. Then if you have a problem, then okay, maybe we can recommend such and such a center, give you some advice. The problem is this isn't really reaching the hard drug users. This isn't really reaching like the crack and heroin users because they just don't go to these meetings. They just don't care. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really do anything for them, you know? So it has its own problems. But I think there are things that to be learned from Portugal and Netherlands, definitely. Are you optimistic about those policies suggested by you being implemented? Do you think that it will happen in the foreseeable future? I think so, yeah. Um, so first of all, like the, the United States, which was one of the big pushers behind like the drug laws worldwide, basically. I mean, like you had the, the Soviet Union stuff and China had their own drug laws, but they generally weren't pushing it on other countries the same way. United States was, but there they're slowly uh, not only legalizing the weed state by state, but there's also a lot of research being conducted into um, psychedelics and MDMA and their use, like for treating the PTSD. Again, see the see the podcast with Mr. Lebedev. There's a lot of research, so I think like over the years, as this research becomes more established, it's going to be harder and harder to make the case against them. And I think we're seeing even in some cons very conservative countries, even much more conservative than Russia, like I saw in even in, in Malaysia, they are starting to like uh, have this have this debate. Places like India as well. So I think that slowly, slowly but surely we're moving in that way. But it's not going to be it's not going to be overnight, unfortunately. Well, Nico, I think this has been an interesting discussion, and I'm sure many of our viewers and listeners uh, would like to get uh, deeper into that topic, learn more about how this underground drug uh, dealing world works. So for that, I would recommend your book, Dope World, and we have, uh, as usual, a contest. Write in the comments section below on YouTube a comment. Uh, what do you think about our debate with Nico? Do you agree with him? Should we decriminalize and legalize drugs? Or do you have arguments against that? The author of the best comment will receive a free ebook, Dope World, by Nico. We will send a digital version of the book 
to you. Please write a comment if you liked that uh, episode of my podcast or disliked it. I read all the comments and will be happy for your feedback. Nico, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm Greg Mastrider. See you next week.